Welcome to the Word Encounter, episode 254, where we will continue in our journey into the book of Hebrews. We uh, ended things in chapter 7 yesterday, so let's pick it up in chapter 8. Matter of fact, we're going to hit the, the last verse, the end of chapter 7, just to kind of connect uh, chapter 7 and chapter 8. And it says, For the law appoints as high priest men who are weak, but the promise of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been perfected forever. And so in verse 8 or chapter 8, it says a heavenly priesthood. It says, now the main point of what is being said is this. And so he's talking, comparing and contrasting in chapter 7, the differences between uh, Jesus's uh, uh, priestly ministry and those of the uh, Old Testament priests. And uh, again, the purpose here is to compare and, tra- and contrast for the Jewish Christians so that they don't defect the faith and go back to a, a, a lesser covenant. And so it says, you know, now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest, this priest being Jesus, also to have something to offer. It says every priest is appointed, you know, and priests offer gifts and sacrifices to God. And so this priest, Jesus, also had to come to the table with something. It says in verse 4, now if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And so the sacrifices and the offerings uh, uh, offered by the Levitical priests in the Old Testament times and in in the New Testament times before uh, Jesus came, and still to this day, as a matter of fact, uh, they were offering uh, gifts and, and, and sacrifices and offerings prescribed by the law. And then we know that the law does not have the power to save. The law has the power to atone for sins in the past, but then if you sin the day after the sacrifice, you're still on the hook. (laughs) So it says these serve serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And so God instituted these things just as a copy and a shadow, just as 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 a replica of the real thing to come embodied in Jesus. Verse six. But Jesus has now obtained a, a superior ministry, and, uh, and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. A superior covenant. Verse 7. For if the first covenant had been fruitful, uh, excuse me, for if the first covenant had been fruitful, uh, come on, Mike. For if the first covenant had been faultless, okay, There would have been no occasion for a second one. There would be no reason for a second covenant if the first covenant was faultless. But finding fault with his people, he says, he being God. See, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with those in the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors. So, The Lord is saying, look, I'm going to make a new covenant, not like the one I made with with your ancestors, but a new one. It says, on that day, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, I showed no concern for them, says the Lord. Wow. Why? Because they did not continue in my covenant. 
because they did not obey the covenant. They did not obey. The Lord says that I show no concern for them because they decided to turn from my covenant. In verse 10, though, it says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. For this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Okay. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And so the new covenant isn't one that's necessarily going to be written on scrolls and, and whatnot, but it's going to be internal. See, he says here, write it on our minds. Place it in our minds and write it on our hearts. And that's why we all, every last one of us on the face of the earth, without anybody telling us, we have a sense of what's right and wrong. We have a sense of what's good and evil. These things are written in our DNA. Nobody has to tell us. Nobody has to tell us that if you take something from somebody else that that's wrong. We just innately know that. Nobody has to tell us that if you take somebody else's life, that is wrong. We just know this because these things are written on our hearts. Mm -mm. And I will be their people. And it says in verse 11, and each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each, uh, yeah, and each his brother or sister saying, know the Lord because they will all know me. And so in other words, he's, let me read this again. And each person will not have to teach his fellow brother or, 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 or sister, his fellow citizen, because they will all know them. They will, they will know, they, they will not have to teach and train people about the existence of me because innately they will know. And each his brother or sister saying, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and will never again remember their sins. And so God is saying that in this new covenant, I will forget your wrongdoings and I won't remember them. See, it's one thing to be forgiven of sins, but have that memory still linger in people. People can uh, forgive you of something, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to forget. God is saying that not only will I forgive you in this new covenant, but I won't even remember it. I won't even remember the transgression. In verse 13, by saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete and what is obsolete is growing old and is about to pass away. In chapter nine, it says, Old covenant ministry in verse one. Now, the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary for a tabernacle was set up. And in the first room, which is called the holy place, um, were a lampstand, a table, the presentation loaves author goes on to, to describe uh, what's in uh, the tabernacle or the tent of the Lord. And so we had the, 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 the holy place and then the holy of holies. So we had the holy place was the outer court and then the holy of holies was the inner court, the inner tent, if you will. And let's drop down to verse six. It says, with these things, well, with these things prepared like this, the priests entered the first room repeatedly performing their ministry. And so... <clears throat> Oh, let me go on. Verse seven. But the high priest alone enters the second room and, and does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people 
uh, that they had committed in ignorance. And so in the outer room, you had priests that were going in there on a daily basis all the time, atoning for the sins of the people. But once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary, if you will, and make atonement with blood and make atonement for the people. Uh, for the sins that they had committed in ignorance. It says in verse 8, the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. So the Holy Spirit was making it clear to the people at the time, whether they listened or not, I don't know, but was making it clear to the people at the time. Now, what you're doing right now is just temporary. This is not the main solution. This is what this verse is saying. The Holy Spirit was making clear that the way into the most holy place, the holy of holies, the inner sanctuary, had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. So while what they were doing things according to the Old Testament, or, or excuse me, according to the Old Testament, according to the Old Covenant, while they were doing things according to the Old Covenant, it hadn't been disclosed yet how things were to be in the New Covenant, the one that uh, Scripture was pointing towards. Then it says in verse 9, this is a symbol for the present time. He's saying the way they were doing things at that time was just a symbol for that time during which gifts and sacrifices were offered that cannot uh, perfect the worshiper's conscience. And so he could atone for your sin, but it couldn't perfect your consciousness. He could forgive you for your sin, but it had no power for you not to sin in the first place. In verse 10, it says, they were physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings, uh, washings imposed until the time of the new order, until the time of the new covenant. And so they did these things in Old Testament days, Old Testament times, under the old uh, covenant, until the new order came. So again, this is being imparted to and taught to the Jewish Christians who are thinking about departing the faith. And the author here is trying to get them to see that if you defect from the faith, then you're, defect, you're defecting from the thing that they were pointing to. You are under the thing that they were pointing to. So why would you leave? <laughs> new covenant ministry. So we just went over old covenant ministry. So new covenant um, ministry says in verse 11, but Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. You see? <clears throat> In verse 10, the end of verse 10 says, until the time of the new order. And then in verse 11, it says, Christ has appeared as a high a priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, uh, not, of this not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once and for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal uh, redemption. So we see that the things that had to be repeated under the, old, uh, under the old covenant, constant sacrifices and offerings, constant atonement, you know, and then the high priest going in once a year to atone for the people for the sins they committed in ignorance for that year, he'd do the same thing the next year. And so these sort of sacrifices and atonements were constant. This, this was the priest's job, a constant thing. What the author is saying is saying, look, under Jesus, he's, he's done this once for all time. Only had to do it once. Not this repetitive thing, keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back. Once. 
not by his own blood, excuse me, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal uh, redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of young cow sprinkled who's, uh, sprinkled those who were defiled, sanctifying for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit uh, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our conscience, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. That was kind of disjointed. In other words, he's saying, if the blood of goats and calves and the ashes of burnt animals uh, could atone for uh, people's sins and, and undefile those who are defiled for a time, how much more then would the blood of Christ, how much more powerful, how much more uh, um, cleansing would the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit, how much more would that cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? It says in verse 15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. See, there was nothing about eternity, you know, as far as their lives. God spoke about what would happen as far as their, their lineage is concerned, things like, you know, you'll have a, a, you know, a son, on the, uh, an heir on the kingdom for, or, or an heir on the throne forever and this, that, and other. But as far as eternal life for the person, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The new covenant speaks to that. And then it says in verse 16, where a will exists, a will being, you know, when you die, this is what I want to happen, you know, the will, a document. Where a will exists, the death of the one who made it uh, must be established. In other words, for a will to go into effect, you first have to die. <laughs> for a will is only valid when people die, since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. Okay, we all know that. Verse 18, that is, um, that is why even the first co uh, covenant was inaugurated with blood. And so they had blood sacrifices because there had to be something that represented death to put a covenant into action. Verse 24 or 22, according to the law, most everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or there is no remission of sin. And so without something has to die, blood has to be shed for a covenant to be enacted, or else there is no forgiveness. Then it says in verse 23, therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens, in other words, it was necessary for uh, the things that were occurring in heaven, that there be copies on earth, the copies on earth of the things in heaven, therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices. In other words, it was necessary for animals' blood to be shed, for them to die, so and for the sacrifices to exist, okay, in order to put old covenant things into action, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sac sacrifices than these. And so the animal sacrifices and whatnot were used on the excuse me, on the earth, 
you know, for the for the things of the old covenant, but for the promises in the new covenant, that because the promises are better, there had to be better sacrifices. See. Therefore, or excuse me, 24, for Christ did not enter the sanctuary made with hands, um, but into heaven itself. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with, he did not enter a temple, if you will, made with hands, see, which was only a model. The temple is only a model of what was to come, but into heaven itself. So Christ went into heaven itself so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of all sin by the sacrifice of himself. His blood was so powerful that it had the ability to be a sacrifice for those at that time and all of those into the future, just one sacrifice himself. And just it is appointed for people to die once after this judgment. So also Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time. He'll appear a second time, not to bear sin though, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So he died once never to die again, but he's going to appear again. Not to make another sacrifice, but to gather all of those who have been waiting for him. The perfect sacrifice, chapter 10, verse 1. Since the law was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. So since the law was only a shadow, was only a copy of what Jesus would do, you see, it could never, it never had the power or the ability to perfect the worshipers. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any conscious, consciousness of sins? In other words, if the law had the same power that Jesus had, then why were there repeated sacrifices? Because if it had the power that Jesus had, then you only had to have one sacrifice. But that's not the way it was. In verse 3, but in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. Part of the problem with the sacrifices is that it brings to remembrance the sins. And the sins still live in the consciousness and therefore the probability of one sinning again is high. Verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, Therefore, as Jesus was coming into the world, he said, You did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. So Jesus is saying, he's talking to the Lord essentially. You did not desire sacrifices. You did not desire any more sacrifices and offerings. He says, but you prepared a body, a physical body, flesh and blood for me. It says in verse six, you did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. 
I have come, God, to abolish this system of sacrifices and offerings, for you gave me a body, flesh and blood, and it will be my blood that will be spilled, that will be powerful enough to transcend time in order that people can achieve and uh, forgiveness and remission of sin through my blood and thereby be able to approach you. Verse 8. After he says, after he, excuse me, after he says above, you are not, you did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then he said, see, I have come to do your will. So then the author is going to explain this. He says, he takes away the first to establish the second. So he, he takes away, you did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings. So saying, the author is saying, he take, Jesus comes and takes away that in order that he established, see, I have come to do your will. So he takes away the first in order to establish the second. He abolishes the first covenant in order to establish the second covenant. He abolishes the old covenant in order to establish the new covenant. And then it says in verse 10, by this will, you know, I'm writing a new will. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. This man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. Therefore, brothers and sisters, this is an exhortation uh, to godliness. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have uh, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. See, since we have, you know, since we have the courage to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. So when he's talking about through the curtain, he's talking about he's established a new way to, for us to come into the Holy of Holies, for us to come into the presence of God. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. We come, we, we, can, we can meet a holy God through the blood of Jesus, you know, and, and get in his presence. Wow. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. In verse 23, it says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. That, that, that's an important one right there. Let us consider one another. Let us think about one another. Let us be concerned about one another to provoke us, to prick us, to move us in love and good works. Not neglecting, and this is verse 25, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Not neglecting to gather together as some are prone to do or as some are in the habit of doing. There's a thought out there that all that's necessary is me and God and nobody else. That's really not supported anywhere in Scripture. You know, the body of believers needs to gather 
needs to be needs to why for the purpose of encouraging and 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 exhorting each other in the faith there's strength in numbers warning against uh, warning against deliberate sin oh wow for if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins for if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth so if we you know, come into the knowledge of Jesus of the truth yet we deliberately go on, go on doing things uh, against that then it says there is no longer remains there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins in other words Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sins. You, there's nothing beyond that. So if you turn away from him, then there's nothing to save you. There's nothing to save you from your sin, sins. There's nothing to atone you for your sins if you turn away from him. That's it. There's nothing else. Verse 27. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. That's what's waiting for you if you turn from Jesus. If you come into a knowledge of Jesus and then you turn from him and says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, then what awaits you is a terrifying expectation of judgment <laughs> and the fury of a fire. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one uh, will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? Wow. When you turn from Jesus, you do all of that. You may not consciously think that's what you're doing, but you do all of that. Then it says in verse 30, for we know uh, for we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And so the, the scripture says, for we know the one who says this. this, God says this. God says, vengeance belongs to me and I will repay. And so when we do all of these things to Jesus, when we trample on the son of God, you know, when we profane the blood of the covenant, you know, when we insult the spirit of grace by turning from Jesus, God says, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay. Imagine if, if uh, all of uh, nasty sort of things uh, would be done to one of your children. What would you want to do to those who bring the, these things against one of your children? What makes you think God is any different with regard to his son? Verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember the earlier days when, after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were, uh, you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the, per with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. He's saying, that, look, when your stuff was taken away, it didn't matter to you because you knew that you had a better possession. 
In verse 35, it says, so don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. In other words, don't turn away from the faith. Remember when you first got in this thing and how you disregarded the things that were uh, taken from you because you knew you had a better promise. And so don't turn away from that. Don't turn away from that knowledge. Don't turn away from the confidence you had in that. For uh, For you need endurance so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. See, you need endurance. You have to persevere. You have to press through. It says in verse 38, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, if he turns from me, I have no pleasure in him, says the Lord. In verse 39, but we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. In this day and age, Faith is not optional. (laughs) To live a righteous life, to call on the name of Jesus, to exhibit endurance, faith is a requirement. Faith is the substance of the things that are hoped for. They're not seen. We 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 don't have them, but it's the substance of those things that we hope for. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. By faith, accept Jesus' invitation. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth that he is in fact Lord. And the Bible says that you will not be put to shame and that you in fact shall be saved. Everybody stay safe. Be blessed. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And should he grace us with another day of life. We'll see you tomorrow in the next episode of the Word Encounter, and we'll conclude Hebrews in that episode. Bye-bye now.